From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It was a picnic in the park, but with a lot more at stake than croquet or volleyball. I'm running because this is a moment where I think we will look back and ask ourselves, did we do everything we can to make good things happen? Now is the time to ask yourselves, what is liberty and justice for all? A first chance to hear from the many Democrats hoping to unseat Senator Cory Gardner. Plus, meet CPR's new Washington, D.C. reporter. Then, 20 years after the Columbine attack, should the school be torn down? I feel like it should be up to the community and the thousands of students that attended there. And later in the show... This isn't a cow, but a truck, and it's for sale. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We sent a couple of reporters to a picnic on Sunday in a Denver park. There were lawn games and blankets on the grass. But the entertainment for this gathering wasn't a local band. It was a load of Democratic candidates who all hoped to take on Colorado Republican Cory Gardner in next year's Senate race. The 2020 election will be the most consequential of our lives. Too many of us are being left behind, undervalued, and overlooked. I joined this race because I think we are literally running out of time. We are facing two man-made disasters like no other. One is Donald Trump himself, and the other is climate change. And they've done it by turning a blind eye to the existential problem of our time, which is climate. I'm concerned about gun violence. I want to find ways to make stricter laws so that we can protect our children. I have been on the front lines of fighting for reproductive justice. I'm running because this is a moment where I think we will look back and ask ourselves, did we do everything we can to make good things happen? Now is the time to ask yourselves, what is liberty and justice for all? CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland was on the scene Sunday, along with our new Washington, D.C. correspondent. That's Caitlin Kim, who's in Colorado for a little while, and they're both in our studio. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, Ryan. Okay, so Caitlin, this was a kickoff event, essentially, for the Democratic Senate primary, I guess. Yes, it was. It was a kickoff event organized by Indivisible Denver. It's a progressive grassroots organization and was called a candidate picnic and forum. But what it really was was a a place for candidates to introduce themselves to voters. And I would actually say interested voters. Um, There were no questions from the audience. The candidates had to answer sort of this fun icebreaker question and one issue question and then um, chosen by pulling a piece of paper out of a box. And then they gave their version of the stump speech. Not a debate, in other words. What was the icebreaker question? Just her curiosity. It it varied. Like who would be the the who's the famous person that you're most uh, compared to, okay. or what was your worst hairstyle, fashion choice, things like that. Okay. Uh, how many candidates were there? There. Oh. There were nine there and one candidate who could not come because of a family emergency, and she sent a surrogate to speak in her place. Okay. And how many people would you say were in the crowd? I would say uh, several dozen, about a hundred. About 100. Okay. So as a ratio of candidate to voter, it was actually uh, pretty high there. Uh, That's not quite as many hopefuls as the Democratic presidential field, but it's still a lot. Benta, why are so many people getting into this race? Well, it's 
expected to be one of the most closely watched U.S. Senate races in the country next year. And incumbent Senator Cory Gardner, he's considered to be pretty vulnerable. He's in a unique situation. He's actually one of the only GOP senators in the country running for reelection in a state President Trump lost. And the president is not especially popular here. Democrats also swept statewide elections last November, and the party is banking on trying to flip this seat. Now, Gardner's running for his second term. There's a lot of enthusiasm on the left to replace him and to try to take back the U.S. Senate. Okay, and that's what's so critical here is the Democrats would like to swing the U.S. Senate back. That's what's at stake. Who are the highest profile candidates to get in this race so far? Well, we have former state Senator Michael Johnston. He ran in the Democratic gubernatorial primary in 2018. We have former Speaker of the State House Andrew Romanoff, and he's run for Congress before. Alice Madden was also in the state legislature, and she was the House Majority Leader. Then we have John Walsh, a former U.S. attorney for Colorado, and Dan Baer worked in the Obama administration. Um, He was the U.S. ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Okay, so some former state lawmakers... Two men who've worked in the federal government. Who else is in the field? We've got some fresh faces and voters I talked to said they were enthusiastic about that. And some of them wanted to definitely see some new names out there. We have Ellen Burns. She's a finance professor at Colorado State University. Trish Zornio is a neuroscientist. Diana Bray, a climate activist. And then there's also community organizer Lorena Garcia. And then Stephanie Rose Spaulding. She's a Baptist pastor and a professor of women's and ethnic studies in Colorado Springs. So quite a crowd. We've got a couple women of color and across the, you know, diverse professional experiences. Yeah. And uh, many of their voices we heard in the introduction there. Caitlin, you've been in Colorado for just a few weeks. I wonder what your first impressions are of seeing this Senate field uh, virtually all together in that park. I have to say, I thought my my first impression was... um, They're very, they're a passionate group of people that are determined to turn this seat blue. And that was sort of one of the main themes I thought that came across on, across all of their stump speeches. The idea of wanting to replace Cory Gardner and really sort of having someone reflect what they see are the values of Colorado in the Senate. Um, I also thought, as Benta mentioned, uh, the diversity of the field. I mean, a lot of men, a lot of women, people of color. And I think that was something that at least the crowd there in the audience wanted to see, at least from the people that we had sp- spoken with. Uh, you know, we mentioned this wasn't a full-on debate, but were there issues that came up repeatedly? Climate change seemed to be a thread from what we heard in the introduction. Yeah, you, actually, when they had these icebreaker questions, each person also had a topic they were supposed to touch on. They had kind of a stump, stump speech and then bring up a topic. So yeah. a- immigration, the Supreme Court. Yes, we had climate change with a census. Impeachment. Yes. Impeachment. Impeachment came up. Yes. There seemed to be a lot of agreement on that issue. No, no, not really. Yeah. No. <laughs> with, with this many candidates, tough to find perhaps agreement on much. Uh, any surprising points, though, of disagreements? No, but I would say it's, still, say it's still early on. I mean, this was not, like, as you said, a debate. This was a forum that was really about introducing the candidates to the voters. And there weren't really a lot of discussions or specifics on policy proposals. It was, I support, you know, fighting climate change. It was, I support um, gun, con- common sense gun control. But it, there were no, like, proposals laying out plans for how they would do that. I'm eager to hear uh, what you heard from people in the crowd about this race. 
Well, because this was the first public event to bring together this crowded field, a lot of folks that I talked to said they were keeping an open mind and they just saw this event as a chance to see the candidates in person, get a feel for each of them. One woman said she wanted a a positive vision and great energy from someone. A number of folks talked about the importance of protecting reproductive rights, concerns about the Supreme Court makeup, backing universal health care, voter Dina Cam drove up from Colorado Springs, actually, and she says she wants to see how the candidates propose tackling major action on climate change. Obviously, that's going to take some money and maybe how they propose to fund um, more of a Green New Deal type action. All right, Caitlin, you're heading back to D.C. at the end of the week to start covering Colorado's congressional delegation What will you be watching for with Cory Gardner in particular, given the challenge he's facing? I think the big thing is how he's going to be defending his record, because unlike these candidates, he actually has a record to defend in Congress, how he's going to defend that record to voters. Because a lot of the voters that I spoke with last night had also mentioned when talking about Senator Gardner that they didn't necessarily agree with his judicial – approving judicial nominees, approving – nominees or or people for position in the Trump administration, uh, whether it be Kirsten Nielsen or other um, uh, political appointees like to organizations like the EPA. So that will be one thing to watch. I think the other thing to be to watch for will be how what he does in the next year and a half to actually bring things to Colorado that Colorado voters care about, whether it be climate change proposals, whether it be bringing, I don't know, BLM to Grand Junction or Denver. Right. There's talk about moving the headquarters from Washington out west. Right. Or if U.S. Space Command is actually selected for Colorado, he can if these are things that he can tout and that will resonate with Colorado voters. But in Cory Gardner, these Democrats face a formidable opponent. I mean, one obviously with strong ties to the party and to fundraising as well. I mean, definitely. He unseated a Democratic incumbent when he won election. He's a very gifted politician. I knew him when he covered the state legislature. He's kind of a go-to person to get a great quote from, and he's very savvy, and he's going to be formidable even in this political climate. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, CPR's Capitol reporters, Benta Berkland, who works primarily out of the state Capitol, and Caitlin Kim, who will be covering Congress for us at that Capitol in Washington, D.C., And uh, since this is our first chance to introduce Caitlin, she's going to stick around. I wanted to hear a bit more about your mission in Washington, your vision for CPR's bureau there. I mean, certainly the upcoming Senate race will occupy some of your attention, which we've already talked about. But what other topics are you interested in? Well, so first of all, I think my mission is pretty simple, to let Coloradans uh, know what their congressional delegation is actually doing in Washington, D.C., how they are or perhaps are not sort of advocating for what the state or what the people here want. Um, I think the other part of my mission is or my vision is what the federal government is doing that will impact Colorado and Coloradans. I think this is everything from defense policies that might impact the military installations here or water regulations or land use um, policy. So those are sort of the things I think I'll be following on more of a federal level. But um, the topics that kind of interest me are things like land use and environmental policy, given how much federal land there is in the state and given how at least, you know, based on what we heard earlier, like a lot of the population is concerned about climate change and environmental issues. And I think when I think Colorado, I think of beautiful, pristine grasslands, mountains. So I think there's a lot of interest in that. Um, I also think of all of the federal labs here. You know, you've got NIST and NCAR and... Uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab. So it speaks even more to the huge federal presence here and the huge federal employment base. 
I guess to tune our toot our own horn here a little bit, uh, you'll be the only reporter from a Colorado news outlet covering D.C. full time. What excites you about covering D.C. for a state, you know, like versus a national outlet? I think what really excites me is actually covering a delegation. I think this is it's going to be fun to actually find out what your legislators are doing for you in the federal in Washington, D.C. that will either help or hurt Colorado, um, whether it be, you know, uh, transportation um, or or infrastructure, things that really have a day to day impact on Coloradans lives. Um, I, and it also beats like having to follow, you know, follow up on the latest presidential tweet or sort of the machinations of Democratic and Republican leadership. I don't think people care that much about the infighting within the the different parties. I think what they care about is how what is being done in Washington is how how it's going to make their lives better. And holding the folks that they've elected from Colorado to account. Why don't we learn a little bit more about you? You're no stranger to D.C. Uh, and in fact, you, you come to us straight from, as we call it, the mothership NPR headquarters. Uh, what have you learned while you've been working there? Um, I, you know, I really got to work with some really great journalists there. And I think that helped me become a better journalist. I'm hoping some of it uh, will have rubbed off. But a lot of what I learned there is uh, things that maybe their listeners won't really know about, but like how to edit better, how to structure scripts better, things like that, which hopefully will come out across in my stories. In strong storytelling. Yes. You, you haven't always been a journalist, though. You actually worked on the other side. Uh, you were with yes. the, the U.S. State Department for many years. I wonder how that experience shapes your approach to being a journalist. Um, I think it gives me a better understanding of how sort of the sausage is made when it comes to sort of policy decisions. It also gives me a lot of patience when it comes to government flacks who don't necessarily call you back right away because I know sort of the the process it takes to get a, a public statement cleared. Um, but it, it gives me, I think, better insight into how the federal government works as a machine and where the, d- the little cogs are and where things can get sort of stuck up. Uh, when we introduce new reporters and hosts, we like to learn a few random things about them. And I was told that when you were asked what we should know about you, you mentioned that you can speak a bit of Estonian. Which means? I studied Estonian. Okay. <laughs> my first my first posting uh, for the State Department was in Estonia, so they made me learn the language. So yeah, I can speak Estonian. <laughs> and how was it to live in Estonia? Uh, it was, you know, like any new place, it takes a while to get adjusted. But when you do, it's really nice. I would say great summers. Go there in the summers with a long days. The winters are dark and cold. Dark and cold. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite memory from that posting with the State Department? Um, I have two. One is uh, that was the first and only country where I did a tandem a skydive jump. So I did that. That My was goodness. fun. And uh, the other thing is I was lucky enough to be there during something called the Estonian Song, Song and Dance Festival. It happens once every five years. And it's where like thousands, like 10,000 choral singers come together in the Songground Festivals and sing. And like, it's a big Estonian tradition. Everybody is there. It's kind of fun. Okay, that's CPR's newest reporter, Caitlin Kim. She'll report on Colorado issues from Washington, D.C. And she's indeed chosen some Estonian music for us. What is this tune? It's called Tuljak. Tuljak. Yeah. Columbine High School has become an uneasy icon of the country's struggle with school shootings. 
Well, in a letter to the Jefferson County community, Superintendent Jason Glass says it may be time to destroy the building and start over. The proposal has upset some families of Columbine victims. CPR's Nathaniel Miner spent months reporting on the school for the podcast Since Columbine. Nathaniel, in his letter, Superintendent Glass mentioned security concerns. What's motivating this decision now? Well, Glass says there have been a record number of uninvited visitors to the building in the last few years. And his letter doesn't give any hard numbers. But in my reporting earlier this year, I learned that more than 150 people a month have just showed up at the school. Jeffco head of security John McDonald told me in March that a handful of people plot something bad, but mostly people are just gawking. There's people that want to feel it, touch it, see it, experience it. Um, And those are the people that we have to say no to, that there's a memorial. And we'd love for you to visit the memorial, but not our school. But they have to take all of these people seriously. So the district has been putting a lot of money into keeping Columbine safe, especially in the last few years. What do you mean by that? I mean, what changed? Well, there's been a big increase in the overall number of threats. And look, Columbine happened 20 years ago, and there's always been a fascination with it. We can blame mass media for a lot of that. But apart from mass media, there were only these really rudimentary websites dedicated to Columbine, really primitive stuff. And in the two decades since then, the internet has really grown up. Social media has made the Columbiner subculture easier to find and given it a bigger reach. Beyond all that, the 20th anniversary this spring put a lot of attention back on the school. Let's take a step back. Why didn't they tear the building down right after the shooting? Well, I mean, no one saw this coming. There had been school shootings before, but none like this. None that obsessed the media for years and inspired copycats. So taken in that light, the decision 20 years ago to repair the building and leave it standing, it makes more sense. But with all the recent threats, and especially that one in April that closed schools across the Front Range, right. former Principal Frank DeAngelis says it's now time to move on. I do support the proposal that's out there to build a new building for Columbine High School. Is it common to tear down schools after shootings? Well, there is precedent for it. And the most visible example is Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. That school was completely demolished. Officials didn't want anyone to be able to keep a souvenir. And sometimes just part of the school is torn down, like a classroom building at Umpqua Community College in Oregon, or even the library at Columbine. But really, it's it's kind of a lose-lose situation. The Sandy Hook shooting has been the subject of these really extreme conspiracy theories over the years. And some people say that the fact that the building was torn down is proof of their theories, that it was all a hoax. And the new Sandy Hook has received threats, too. A new building isn't going to guarantee safety. This has been a conversation for a long time at Columbine. How do survivors and victims' families feel? I talked with around a dozen family members and survivors about this earlier in the spring when the question was just hypothetical. And most people told me that the building was really meaningful to them, both to see hundreds of students there today and to be able to visit it themselves. Connie Sanders' father, Dave, was a teacher who died in the shooting. And every year she comes to the school to sit on the spot where he was killed. It's marked by a flower. And last year I showed up and there were a bunch of kids sitting on the flower and they were doing a community service project. And at first I was like, get off my flower. <laughs> like, that's mine. That's... And, and then I realized, like, this is what it's all about. This is what he would have wanted. 
That was earlier this year. Then I talked with Sanders after the proposal came out, and she was really upset. She heard about it from a reporter. And my first reaction was I didn't know really how to feel about it because um, I feel like it should be up to the community and the thousands of students that attended there. Sanders says even if Jefferson County goes to its voters to ask for more money, that vote won't include all of the people who she thinks should have a say. Beyond that, she says a brand new Columbine won't fix the bigger problem. She's a mental health provider now, and she says that the district should be spending more money than it is on improving those services for its students. Nate, what's next? When will school leaders decide what to do? The school district put out a survey to collect the public's feedback. The superintendent says discussions will take place over the next few months. Interesting that they might replace the building, but keep the name, though. Yeah, uh, it'll be really fascinating to see what the feedback shows, if the name Columbine itself is somehow a magnet and not just the building. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. CPR's Nathaniel Miner on a proposal to tear down Columbine High School 20 years after the shooting there. And I encourage you to check out our podcast, Since Columbine, to learn more about how the attack reverberates today. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An artist on the Western Slope is ready to let go of one of his prized possessions. You might remember Lyle Nichols from our reporting, the man who creates large sculptures out of materials many would consider junk. He has used Harley-Davidson mufflers to make a fish he named Harley. He took rusty tools from an old dairy farm and constructed a life-sized cow with them. We visited Lyle near his home at near Palisade last summer and found his yard full of bowling balls, old appliances, even discarded kitchen sinks, raw material for art. But the real eye-catcher parked next to his home was a truck with a fiberglass cow on top, a kind of bovine motorhome complete with mooing horn. She may not bring you again, but... Lyle Nichols made it himself. I've seen that cow at a restaurant. When I was a kid, we used to go there and get ice cream and the folks would eat steaks. And I said, yeah, I didn't want it to leave the Grand Valley, so I bought it at an auction. And then I bought this truck and cut cut it out to make it fit. Nichols recently told the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel he's selling the truck for 15,000 smackers. At age 70, the artist is retiring from doing commissioned work, and so he's downsizing. He hopes someone in the Grand Valley will buy the cow motorhome because he wants to keep it in the area. And one of the funnest things to do with it is drive it down a dirt road with the rolling hills, and someone's coming towards you, and they come over the hill, and all they see is that big cow head coming towards them. That was worth the whole thing. You can see photos of the mooing vehicle and read a profile of Nichols at CPR.org. If you love coffee, this may perk up your ears. 60% of wild coffee species are at risk of extinction. The culprits, according to a recent study, climate change, deforestation, and development. Sharada Krishnan is an expert on the coffee plant. She even owns a coffee farm in Jamaica, and she's horticulture director at Denver Botanic Gardens. Welcome to the program. 
Oh, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Today. I'll note that you weren't part of the study, but you've worked on coffee conservation. Are you surprised by the findings? No, the findings I think、uh, was predictable. And I have worked on wild coffee in Madagascar in the past, and I have seen live where、uh, they have. You can see that they are threatened quite a bit. Threatened by those forces we mentioned, development、yes. and climate change. Now it's important to know that you're saying wild coffee. What does that mean? Wild coffee are not a lot of these are not cultivated, but they are belong to the same genus Caffeia. And they are wild relatives, what we call as crop wild relatives. And in the future, we need to go into these crop wild relatives to see if they may have some traits that could、uh, confer either resistance to pests or diseases or drought tolerance and those type of characteristics. So there may be characteristics in the wild coffee that benefit the coffee drinker、uh, when they are integrated into the stuff that's raised on farms like yours in Jamaica. Yes, definitely. Okay.、Uh, I suppose at one point all coffee was wild. To some yes. De- yeah. yeah. Okay. Say just a bit more about what threatens coffee, and is it a global problem? Yes,、uh, the coffee species are predominantly in Africa, Madagascar, and a couple of the Indian Ocean islands, and a few in、uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and one in Australia. And a majority are in about half of the species are in Madagascar. Wow. Yeah, about fifty-nine species come from Madagascar, and、uh, my work has been in Madagascar. And a lot of the threats are deforestation has been a huge problem there, as well as climate change. What are ways of conserving wild coffee? So coffee conservation is a little tricky because you cannot conserve coffee plants as seeds.、Uh, you may all know about、uh, the global seed vault,、uh, which some we call them doomsday vault up in、uh, Svalbard in the Arctic, where a lot of the crop species are conserved as seeds. Unfortunately, coffee cannot be conserved as seeds, so we have to conserve them as living plants, as what we call as field gene banks. It's just like a botanic garden where we have plants in、uh, the Out in the out in the open, and so that's what field gene banks are. So coffee needs to be conserved in such a way. But along with that, there are the threats of,、uh, as an example, in Madagascar, there was a gene bank that was completely wiped out because of a cyclone. So、oh. those type of threats or pests or diseases, something happens, the whole、uh, gene bank can be wiped out. Okay, so you can't just store wild coffee in a bank. Why not? What is it about the coffee seed? That allows it、uh, being a tropical crop.、Uh, there are two types of seeds: what we call orthodox seeds and recalcitrant recalcitrant seeds. Orthodox and recalcitrant. Yes. Okay. New vocabulary for me. And a lot of the crop species, rice or wheat, are all orthodox seeds that can go into cold storage, whereas coffee is a recalcitrant which cannot be stored、uh, in cold storage. They lose their viability in、uh, less than a year. I love calling it recalcitrant. It's as if the seed is stubborn、yes. and will not be conserved in these doomsday、uh-huh. banks. So I suppose conservation depends on having somewhat protected land where you would grow these wild coffee plants. Is that happening, and where? Yeah, it is happening. There are a lot of gene banks that have been established in most coffee-producing countries.、Uh, during the '60s and the '70s, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization、uh, 
predicting the threat to coffee, they did um, numerous collecting expeditions, and all of these collect from uh, seeds that they collected from these collecting missions were backed up in uh, many global gene banks. But those were from the 60s and 70s, and a lot of the gene banks are now 70-plus years old. And so the trees are getting old. So with that comes what we call genetic erosion. Huh. So th- these have to be maintained, but they also have to be replaced to a certain extent. Yes. How might this affect the coffee that I drink? So I think of those as the two primary beans, right? Like, is it Robusto and Arabica? Arabica and Robusta are the two cultivated coffee. Predominantly, Arabica has a better flavor and lower caffeine. So that is the more preferred uh, coffee, which originally is from Ethiopia and South Sudan. And how might what is happening to wild coffee species, the fact that more than half of them are threatened, how might that affect the cup of coffee that I drink? Arabica coffee itself is threatened by climate change. And uh, Arabica is very limited in where it can grow. So with climate change, as uh, uh, regions where they're growing gets warmer, there is no other place for them to grow. So to adapt to climate change, we need to look for genes from other wild species that have drought tolerance or pest or disease resistance that you can incorporate through a breeding program into Arabica. It's been nice to talk to you and fascinating stuff. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Sharada Krishnan of the Denver Botanic Gardens. We spoke in January. And thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters today. We would not exist if it weren't for listener members. This is CPR News. CPR News.